Okay, now we're ready. We weren't ready the last time. Now we're ready this time. So here we are again, July the 12th, uh, 2015, lecture discussion number 203 on the Book of Romans. And uh, now that we have the July 4th intermission behind us, I'm on my final push to conclude uh, this small subject that uh, I've begun a few weeks ago, most recent subject uh, within the subject, if you will. And as you might know, I've been building the case that the sign of the nation of Israel, there is a sign of the nation of Israel. If you've ever listened to any of the Bible scholars with regard to Israelology, Arnold uh, G. Fruchtenbaum being the most prominent, um, he's made the point many, many times, and I have tried to say it as often as I can. You don't need any prophecy except the prophecy of the nation of Israel. That's all you need. It's so amazing. Um, that, that that would be singularly uh, all that anyone should ever be uh, wanting to have. But I've been building the case that the sign of the nation of Israel is interconnected with the sign of the taken bride or the taking of the bride. In other words, they're two parts of a whole. They're not to be separated. You're to look at both of them. The sign of the nation of Israel interconnected with the sign of the uh, taking of the bride. And they're in the two parts of a whole in the same manner as the Old Testament is likewise coupled to the New Testament. And something that we should always look for and suspect that is occurring when you see two things like this, start putting them together and see how they fit together. They always fit together. Occasionally, um, I'm asked this. Um, they say to me, what do you see Mr. Cronister, as your foremost contribution with respect to biblical scholarship. At full disclosure, no one has ever asked me that question. Not, not one time. Not. <laughs> you knew that, didn't you? Never, not once. Certainly not in that form. Here, let me give you the question that they actually asked me. Uh, they asked me, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> What's a, what is this stuff that you do? And that, that I get all the time, more than I can count. And obviously I manipulated that question to make it, make it appear more sophisticated. That's my um, naked attempt to imply that biblical scholars are interested in my considerations, which uh, they are not, by the way. But if they were, and again, they are not, but if they were, I would say to them that are not, that I have spent the entirety of my so-called career here flailing away at the ubiquitous state of degraded Christology. And I believe that uh, that may not mean anything to you yet. Let me expound on it. Christology is almost gone now. Bill DeCow was talking about it in the pregame. I think that uh, is a, an absolute prophecy of the Laodicean age. We are in the Laodicean age, in my view. And the first thing that is missing is Christ in the church. He is not in very many churches anymore. Another way that I can say it is the contemporary church has all but abandoned the Old Testament. They hate it. They speak of it in ways that can only be insulting. But they've abandoned the Old Testament, and few, if any, are teaching the portraits of Christ in the Old Testament. They don't even know the portraits of Christ are there, and they don't care. And they, instead, they present the Old Testament as antiquated and irrelevant, 
and not applicable, extraneous, and they're going to proclaim the Old Testament to be merely a disconnected series of individual fanciful stories. They'll even call them fables. Those are Christians doing that, churches doing that. They, they say they're inventions of, of authors that are uh, for purposes that are indeterminate. In other words, just a bunch of stuff. And that's what they say. And instead, it's the truth is the exact is the absolute opposite of that. The Old Testament has one thing it's trying to do. And again, I've been flailing away at this uh, my whole time here. I, I, I found something. We're, we're, as you know, we moved my material out of my mother's house, and we had to make room for my sister in my house. So I now have seven dogs. Don't tell the Neighborhood Watch Committee, they'll never find out. Fortunately, the fact that I have seven dogs will not be on the Internet, so no one will report me. It's temporary, but try that sometime. But my sister and her dogs, and uh, and Anna, Anna has two. They're not really dogs. We haven't decided genetically what they are. They're little tiny things. They could be a rabbit. We don't know. She doesn't shave them very often. But in any event, I can claim they're... I can, they don't look like dogs. Uh, they might think they're dogs. And the point of it is, is that I have a bunch of stuff in my house now, packed all the way to the ceiling. So we're trying to get rid of things that we found. And we found lectures that I did in 1996 on CDs. No, I'm sorry, not CDs, on cassettes. Uh, and a whole bunch of them. And all the writings, and I thought, well, this will be interesting. It wasn't. Wasn't interesting, <laughs> but anyway, the point of it is, is that I found all of this, and I I noticed, wow, I have been blasting away on the purpose, the singular purpose of the Old Testament. I have evidence of it all the way back to 1996, and I haven't hardly ever de- deterred from that, and and it struck me, and that's part of the reason I bring it up today. The Old Testament has a singular intention. Every account in the Old Testament is a literally true actual event and hidden within the lives and the experiences of these real living people who lived and still live today because they're saved and they live for eternity. God has put himself, he placed himself in there. He did it in type primarily, uh, symbols as well, but sometimes he actually went there in person. And those are Christophanies or Theophanies. But all of it is Christology. In other words, the study of Christ, the finding of Christ in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is on every single page. And if you don't find him, then you're not looking. And if you don't look, you've missed the whole point of the Old Testament. Well, and that's the objective, the design of the Old Testament. And apart from that design, apart from that objective, without this singular purpose, I don't want to say you're wasting time, but you're certainly not doing anything valuable. God will take our silliness and sometimes make it valuable to us, but... To read the Old Testament without looking for Christ is a fundamental error, as foundational an error as you can make biblically. So, in addition to that, the 
portrait of Christ that is the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is intertwined. Every word connects to other words. There's no word that you can take out. That's why I get so frustrated when they tell me, this is a story, and this is another story, and there's no relationship between the two stories that they'll give you in Sunday school class. The, the whole point of it is that that story and this story, story connect together. You have to figure out how it is that Samson connects to Goliath, for example, because he does. Every story is related to another story. Adam and Eve and Joseph. It doesn't matter what story you pick, they will connect. And your job, of course, is to find that and to know it. Every word connects to other words. And all of the narratives touch. Each one adds another element of Christ until the fullness of Christ is revealed. It's a jigsaw puzzle, if you will. You take all the pieces and you put them together, and when you get them all together, it's a picture of Christ. And you can figure out that he's God by doing that. And the New Testament is likewise conjoined to the Old Testament. I say this as often as I can. The impossibility, the impossibility of multiple human beings writing from distinct times, separated by hundreds, in some cases a thousand years. The the impossibility of human beings, human writers, compiling a book with such profound entanglement where everything is entangled, all of it is entangled, that is beyond our imagination. The mathematics of that being accomplished are ridiculous. They're astronomical. Impossible for it to have happened. So what's the conclusion? It's thus conclusive. The Bible, it cannot be written by human agency, then it must be of supernatural agency or supernatural construct. And a cursory, just a shallow investigation reveals that. And anybody who, who fights you on that clearly doesn't care, takes hardly any energy to learn that's the case. So when I run into people that don't know it, I know they don't care. So, with the whole of Scripture specifically written, to be interlaced, to be knitted together, woven in a method that only a mind that sees time simultaneously could accomplish. That's what he, that's the only way you could produce this book. You must see time simultaneously. Okay? With that being the case, then we should expect the sign of Israel and the sign of the taken bride to demonstrate these very self-same, same characteristics. And that's what I've been proposing the past recent weeks. And hopefully you've noticed my diabolical plan in its formative stages. I've been subtle as best I can. I want you to figure it out on your own, as you know. That's the whole purpose of my style, is to get you to do it yourself. And I didn't originate that style. I stole it. I remember the man very well whom I stole it from. Jane named her her daughter after his wife. So I knew him very well, and he refused to answer any of my questions until I could answer at least part of it. He did that to me for every day I spent with him. And so I learned what he was accomplishing. 
His goal was to make me as strong as he possibly could. So that's why I do it the way I have done it. I want to feed it to you slowly and let you begin to figure it out. For example, it's my assertion that the taking of the bride of Christ, which is the 11th step. I'll I'll give you this little piece of information. We have 12 steps. The 9th, the 10th, and the 11th are called the abduction sequence. The the taking of the bride of Christ is the 11th step of the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony. The bridegroom's abduction of his bride is a hidden event. In other words, no one knows but a few people. When the bridegroom comes and takes his bride, hardly anyone knows. And therefore what? If the abduction of the bride has a relationship to the sign of the taking of the church, then the the taking of the church or the sign of the taking of the church will be largely a hidden event. Dana was talking to me earlier about what it comes at midnight. It comes as a thief. So if the sign of the taking of the bride is largely a hidden event, then that, the implications of that become pretty significant. Uh, my reasoning, as you know, that the bride or the rapture, uh, the taking of the bride or the rapture is largely unseen is mostly partly based on the details of these ninth, tenth, and eleventh steps of the Hebrew ceremony. And uh, mostly partly as opposed to partly partly. The bridegroom comes at midnight in the cloak of darkness. Why does he do that? He describes himself uh, as a thief in many instances, and as though there is a shofar. In other words, there's a ram's horn, there's a trumpet sound, and there's a shout, and there's the behold the bridegroom comes or cometh. The indication is that only those who are watching and are ready, they're the only ones who will know it. And obviously, the, the taking of a bride, taking of the bride is a sudden event. A suddenness is a primary property. He comes and he goes quickly. And you have to be ready. You have to watch for it or you'll miss it. The implication is clear as it can be. So what's the question then? Apart from the bride, who notices that the bride is gone? And I'm familiar with the Left Behind books and all of that stuff. And in the Left Behind books, there's piles of clothes everywhere. And I got all of that. Makes for good TV or movies or whatever. But the implication is is that the whole world notices the bride is gone. And in which case it becomes a huge sign, an unmistakable sign. And it's not, it's not uh, characterized that way in Scripture. So I, I ask again. If it is a sudden event, if it's under the cloak of darkness, if it's quick, if it's quiet in the sense, um, who, who notices that she's been gone or that she's been taken? Uh, the, the answer to that is the reciprocal, as always, right? There's a reciprocal to this question. I, I submit, I, and I think it provides the answer, and that being, who is noticing the sign of the wife right now? I started out by telling you the sign of the nation of Israel is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Who notices it? 
Who's noticing it? The sign of the nation of Israel. Or if you want, you can put it this way. The parable of the fig tree. Who knows about the parable of the fig tree? And I will I'll concede that many commentators dismiss any connectivity of the fig tree to Israel. Uh, my argument for the Israel connectivity to the fig tree begins with the location, the context of the fig tree uh, parable in Scripture. So uh, it's placed immediately before the ninth step. It's right here. Right here i got fig tree. And then i got ninth, tenth, and eleventh. Essentially ninth mainly. But I've got that abduction sequence of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That's Matthew 24, 32 through 36. We'll, we'll reread that in just a second. So the very fact that right before the abduction of the, of the bride sequence, I had the parable of the fig tree, tells me that the fig tree has some relationship to the nation of Israel. I'll just throw that out there for those who will argue with me. I think that one fact is overwhelming evidence that the fig tree is a sign of Israel reference. So I ask motion to, to dismiss. Any objections? Sustained. Anyway, uh, obviously I'm going to make this, the same posture with respect to remember Lot's wife. That's where we're headed, aren't I? That's a mysterious ad, ad, admonition, a command by Christ, Luke 17:32, and it's similarly located. Just like the fig tree is right up against the Hebrew abduction uh, sequence, ceremony, uh, betrothal ceremony sequence. Remember, Lot's wife is with Noah and Lot and unexpectedness and suddenness, both at uh, Matthew 24, 37 through 44 and Luke 17, 26 through 37, as you know. Though, uh, two sections of scripture from a few weeks ago that uh, contain many consonant characteristics or elements. And um, so, therefore, let me just take an aside here. I think the fact that, remember, Lot's wife is located where it is, that fact alone necessitates the position that the subject is identical in both passages, both in Matthew 24 and Luke 17. And therefore, remember, Lot's wife is established as an abduction of the bride accreditation. Same argument that I'm using now for the fig tree parable. And again, I, I concede, I see that many disagree, as unbelievable as you may find that to be the case. And we're going to see where the evidence takes us here in a minute, and I'm confident that the mystery of remember Lot's wife fits only with the abduction of the bride sequence, and the parable of the fig tree fits only with the sign of the wife, or the sign of Israel. So, Expect that to be presented more fully in the coming weeks. Okay, let me repeat the early question. In case you thought I wandered off of the, uh, my meticulously prepared notes here. Okay, I did. The reciprocal of who notices the taking of the bride is who then notices the parable of the fig tree or the sign of the wife or the sign of the nation of Israel. Or if you wish... The complement of the fig tree parable is, remember, Lot's wife. See where I went really fast? I jumped some steps. Back up a second. Who right now is noticing the nation of Israel? How many today, how many people today 
are aware of the sign of the nation of Israel. Let me rephrase it. How many people today are aware of the sign of the fig tree? How many people today are aware of the sign of the taken or the abducted bride? How many people today understand the sign of remember Lot's wife? Back up again. Let me, we can take, let's be specific and let's be, put a number. How many people today, give me a number, how many people in the United States, to make it more easy, know about the sign that is the nation of Israel? How many? We have 300 million, 325 million people in the United States, half of those are children probably, or at least a third. So let's say there's 200 million that could read. Okay, that's not true with our public education. Sorry. Not really fake. Sorry. But let's say we got 150 people that are literate. How many of those literate people of that 150 million know that the nation of Israel is a sign? An incredible prophecy that points to Christ being God. How many people know that? What do you think? Million? Ten million? Five million? Not very many. One percent? Hardly anybody knows that. Very few Christians know. So that's, that is one of the most incredible signs the Bible can possibly present. It's the sign of the nation of Israel. And hardly anybody even knows it's a sign, much less what the sign is saying. We're going to study it here in a minute. And over the next few weeks. So, if that's the reciprocal of remember Lot's wife, or that's the reciprocal of the ninth step of the Abduction of the bride, or the, I'm sorry, it's the uh, ninth step of the Hebrew uh, betrothal ceremony, which is the ninth, tenth, and eleventh sequence of the abduction of the bride sequence. How many are going to be aware? If hardly anybody knows about Israel, and the reciprocal of Israel is the taking of the bride, how many people are going to know about the taking of the bride? When it's cloaked by darkness and it comes really quick and you have to be ready for it, and you have to watch for it, you gotta know about it. How many people are gonna notice it? If you grant me the premise and you say five million will know about Israel, how many people are gonna know about the bride? If they are compliments, if they are two halves of the whole. So what do you think about your movies and your books now? Chances that anybody knows about the abduction of the bride is very small, or such a small percentage, it's hardly noticeable. Who will know? I can tell you exactly. Who will know? I can promise you, I'm, I can come really close to how many people will know that the bride was taken, and I can tell you where they're going to be. Not that hard. He said, remember Lot's wife. They're all going to be in Israel. The answer is, is the people that are aware of the wife are in the bride. And the people that are going to be aware that the bride is gone are in the wife. Does that make sense? Israel is going to know about the church and the church knows about Israel because they're interconnected. They're two parts to a whole. Even tells us that. The bride knows about the parable of the fig tree, and the wife will know what remember Lot's wife means. 
as an aside, I've been asking many of you the exact question intentionally at the end of the lectures the last few weeks in the post game. I wander around and I find one or two of you, and I've done it. You all know who you are now because I've done it to almost all of you. And I ask you the same post game question during the buffet while you're eating. And I've used different forms of it, but mostly the question goes like this. When did the angels let go of Lot's wife's hand? Or if you prefer, did the angels ever let go of Lot's wife's hand? Because they had it, had her by the hand. I've asked you many times, did she work her way free? She gnaw herself off? Chew the hand of the angel off or her own hand? How did she get loose? Did she get loose? Did they let go? If they did let go, when did they let go? Consider the implications if you have the angels abandoning Lot's wife at her death. How many angels do I have at her death? Two. I want you to consider the implications that angels abandon you after they have you by the hand at your death. You like that view? That's common, if not overwhelming. Is it your position that these two angels were told to release Lot's wife? Let her go. Who would have ordered that? Who, had any, who was there? God himself was there. Christ is there. Remember, Christ is omniscient and outside of time. I should never have to remind anyone of that. It's unnecessary here at Cliffside, I know. Be uh, patient, though, because I am an Internet phenomenon, as you know. Okay, I'm not. You know that, too. All of that's sort of a joke. Even though I did see, uh, uh, I did see uh, Super Dave said one of our websites is now over uh, 50,000 downloads. I don't know which. Uh, Sermon Audio. Is that the one it was? Yeah. No. And that's our smallest one, I think, isn't it? So we're doing pretty good. Oh, I wouldn't call it a phenomenon. Okay, I will because it's funny. Anyway, there are there are some people on the internet, uh, very few, who are just joining us, and they do not know that Christ is omniscient, always and always outside of time. And so, is it your position, if you have this lot position, Lot's wife position, that's so common that uh, Christ ordered the two angels to release the wife? Let go of her hand. When did he order that, if that's your view? At what point? Did they have her all the way up the mountain and then she wanted to go back to him and they looked at him and he said, okay, cut her loose. Is that how he does it? If that were true, who gets saved? Hardly, none. Okay, off to the parable of the fig tree and its attendant obvious questions. And before we read this parable... As is always the case, there is nothing isolated in the Bible. Remember that? Nothing ever isolated in the Bible. So again, this is what is so astonishing about God's Word, the interrelated aspect, the Christology of it, the fact that Christ is on every page. That's what identifies what's in your Bible as God-breathed. Everything connects eventually to everything. We see the exact same design, by the way, in your human body, in mine, in the body of animals, in the ecology, in the universe, the, the this fine-tuning that's in 
uh, just on this earth that allows for life, the intricate mechanism that is, uh, you know, gravity, for goodness sakes. That's why I'm so fascinated by all of this stuff. Whoever designed this creation wrote this book because they're identical. So know that. And it's so exhaustive in scope, the Bible is, we cannot begin to resolve it. We don't have time. But we can at least know something about fig tree, about the parable of the fig tree. What can we start out by knowing about the parable of the fig tree after that rant that I just gave you ten seconds ago? There's got to be what? i got to go and get all the fig trees, don't I? They're all going to be what? They're going to be connected. You know, you can look at your hand and say, my brother, by the way, decided to get in a fist fight with a table saw. It did not go well. Uh, He's not going to play uh, the piano nearly as well as he did. And he stunk. So now he's going to be unbearable to listen to on the piano. He, He cut off, badly mangled his fingers. So, why did I get to that? I had a reason. Oh, I remember now. You can tell, as a trained professional, you can look at your hand and say, this finger and this finger work together. This thumb works together. I can do cool things with it. I can play pianos or guitars or bowl, go bowling. I have I have this really fascinating system that is, ooh, and I have the same over here. Wow. And I can do wonderful things with both of them. Independently, but they are connected. It is obvious that your fingers are connected one to the other. I got ten, okay, I have eight and two thumbs. But I've got a lot here still, fortunately. If I'm smart enough to know my fingers and thumbs are connected together, even though they're on separate hands, I should be able to figure out that the fig tree parable and what else in the Bible that has to do with a fig tree where does the first place I go? If I'm going to figure out what the fig tree parable is, I've got to go find all the fig trees. The first place I'm going to go is Genesis 3-7. At least I'm going to do that, right? The whole, one, of the, one of the main points of that, of course, is that it's a fig tree. That's not an insignificant happenstance, coincidental, arbitrarily put in detail. The key to that story is that it's a fig tree. And certainly the key to the fig tree parable is that it goes back to Genesis 3-7. God ultimately takes those fig leaves off, doesn't he? He takes them off. He strips them. And he replaces them with his blood or the blood of animals that typify his blood. And we must keep that at least at the forefront when we start reading this fig tree parable, right? As well as all the other passages where God himself speaks directly of figs or fig trees. We at least say everywhere where God talks about fig trees, I should add to this parable, and everywhere that fig trees are prominent, for example, Genesis 3, I should get that together. And so just to give you a few ideas, uh, Christ, uh, Matthew, Christ did Matthew 21, 18 through 22, and Mark 11, 12 through 14, he curses a fig tree. That's got to have something to do with the fig tree parable. That's inserted just before the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony in Matthew 24. And then I got Luke 13, 6. I'm going to give you what he says about that. He says, a certain man goes talks to a keeper about a fig tree. 
Does that remind you of anything? A certain man and a keeper? That's the good Samaritan again, isn't it? John 1, 47 through 51, Nathanael walks up to God, walks up to Christ, and Christ says to him, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathanael falls down, essentially, he just almost collapses and says, you're God. Now, what's that make you want to know? What was he doing under that fig tree? Had to be doing something. As soon as Christ tells Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree, Nathaniel says, you're God. Only God knows about me in that fig tree. Oh, what was Nathaniel doing? It has something to do with the parable of the fig tree, don't you think? It's got to. All the fig trees connect together. Go find them. Find them in anywhere you want. Uh, uh, Zechariah. Find them in Habakkuk. 317 or Habakkuk, whichever you prefer. I get trouble for that. In any event, we certainly will need to be cognizant of the prominent fig tree verses at the least in order to understand the parable of the fig tree. Okay? So let's take a run at this the best we can. Matthew 24, 32 through 35. Again, let me point out Matthew 24, 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. That is the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That's what that verse is about. If you think that Christ doesn't know what time it is, what's the word that I have for you? I don't know what to say. A bunch of words come to mind. All of them appropriate, none of them. I can't say idiot and stupid because it goes out over the Internet and I get in trouble. But if you think that that is something to do with Christ's omniscience, hit yourself in the forehead repeatedly with something hard. That is the ninth step of the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. And right before that is this parable of the fig tree. So if this is the abduction of the bride, which it is, or the sign of the taking of the bride, or the, or the rapture, if you wish, if that's what this is, then why does he put the fig tree right in front of it? Because he does. So let's read it. It starts out really cool. Now learn this. Yay. We should probably learn. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. You also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place, as heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Pay attention to that. Now learn this. Now learn this parable of the fig tree. Again, let me repeat. How many people do you think in this country, just the United States, let's not take the whole world, how many people, if this is the same 
by the way, is the sign of the nation of Israel, and I'm going to tell you that it is, how many people in this country have any idea about what this fig tree parable means? Hardly any. So again, how many are going to know about the rapture of the church when it happens? Now learn this parable of the fig tree. Now is the time to learn about the fig tree parable. After he has talked about the second question third. Does that make any sense? Do you remember that? I have three questions in Matthew 24. He answers the first question second. He answers the second question third. And the third question first. So let me put it in the right order. He he answers the third question first. The first question second. And the second question, third. So after he answers the second question, third, which is, when are you coming as King Messiah? When are you revealing yourself as not just the Messiah King, but as God in the flesh? When are you going to do that? After he answers that question, he says, now learn the parable of the fig tree. This is the time, now that I've answered your your question, your second question, third, now that I've answered all three questions, but primarily the second question, third, now it's the time to learn the parable of the fig tree. The disciples, when are you coming as Messiah, King of the world? The disciples wanted to know when Jesus was returning to rule his creation from Jerusalem, and he answers them. After his answers to their second question, which he answered third then it is time to learn this parable. So far, so good? Hope so. When the fig tree begins to show life. Okay, so what's that tell you about the fig tree? Right now, it's not showing any life when he's talking about it. When the fig tree begins to show life, buds. When its branches already become tender, and puts forth leaves, you know that I'm about to come back as Messiah King God. So watch this fig tree, okay? So what's the fig tree? People disagree. What do we call them? Mostly wrong, yes. And some really, really bright people disagree with me. It's hard for me to call people that smart wrong. But I do it as an obligation to them. (laughs) when you see this fig tree begin to show life, begin to bud, begin to blossom, get some leaves out, summer is near. I'm about here. So, if you have the position that the fig tree is the nation of Israel, you have to ask the question, don't you? Is it showing any life yet? Is it budding? Are there blossoms there? See, what is life to God? What are leaves to God? How does God typically define life? And what happened to the fig tree that it's got to begin to produce leaves again? Obviously, I have a time where it's not producing any leaves. So, when the fig tree demonstrates leaves or life, then summer, the coming of Christ as Messiah King, God in the flesh, is near. So look at the context again. The context before that, he's answering question number two. Summer must refer to question number two because the fig tree comes after he answers 
Question number two. Question number two is his return as king. When I am revealed as God, he is saying, that's going to occur very soon after the fig tree starts to blossom and shows life as God defines life. So I'll ask you again. Is the nation of Israel showing life as God defines life? Because when you see that, you will know. You will see those things of Matthew 24, 27 through 31. The light flashes, the vultures, the dark sun, the dark moon, the stars falling, the heavens shaking, the mourning of the tribes, the clouds of heaven. Ezekiel 1, 4 are going to be there. The pillar of cloud, if you wish. Angels, a trumpet. You're going to see those things and you're going to know that I'm almost here. Who's he talking about? Who's he talking to? That's a tribulational reference, isn't it? Who's he talking to? He's talking to somebody. They're asking him, his disciples, and he's answering. And the generation that sees all these things is going to make it. It won't pass away. Okay? So let's add some more information here. How am I doing? Oh, pretty good. I went really fast. I always go fast when I rant. Have you noticed? I'm a lot faster. I'm a fast ranter. That's probably why everybody likes it. They always say, you should rant more. And it occurs to me now that you just want to get to the buffet faster. Nothing to do with appreciating the rant. It's probably completely disconnected. Hmm. I'll go home and meditate on through that. <coughs> but here we are now, Luke 21, 29 through 32. What is this? Ooh, look, the parable of the fig tree. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree. Notice that right in front of that again is the answer to question number two, Luke uh, 21, 25. Uh, through 28. So once more, after he answers question number two, he says, now's the time. Now that you know the answer to questions one or three, uh, one and two, now that you know those answers, now's the time you learn about the fig tree. But you got to know the answers to those three questions first. Yes, ma'am. Oh, you're, okay. So here we are now, again, fig tree parable. Then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Don't just look at the fig tree now. Look at all the trees. The fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourself that summer, which we now know is Messiah King's second coming, is near. So you also, when you see these things happening... Know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will by no means pass away. What he's saying there is, is going to happen. Absolute certain. Now, I want you to notice the additional, all the trees. All the trees and the fig tree are showing life. As God defines life. Now, I'm going to agree that the national reemergence of Israel is a great fulfillment of prophecy. It's beyond miraculous. It's wondrous. It's a reality that uh, that we have seen. It's it's amazing that we have seen it and to witness Israel's rebirth. It's it's a privilege. 
It's an extraordinary privilege given to us, a sign. Just imagine, for example, all the Jews that wanted to see this sign and never saw it. All the Christians that wanted to see this sign and never saw it. We get to see it. What an incredible blessing for us. We're seeing, when he says, my word will by no means pass away, he's telling you, you start to see the sign of the nation of Israel, that tells you that everything is true. It's all true. You don't have to worry about anything. You've got it. And so I don't want to diminish the fact that Israel has re-emerged as a nation. But, though Israel as a nation has been resurrected, I put that word in there purposely, Israel as a nation has been resurrected, the question remains, has let me put it this way for you. If everything in the Bible is connected, and everything in the Bible is connected, and I'm starting to see blossoms and buds on a tree, where do I go now? What else blossoms and buds? And it's an incredible miracle. Aaron's rod, absolutely. So though Israel has been resurrected, the question remains, has the rod blossomed? Does the fig tree have life as God defines life. How are you answering that question? Don't raise your hand here. How many of you think that the fig tree right now, the nation of Israel, is blossoming? Don't raise your hands here. Ever? How many you think it's not? It's a tie. <laughs> okay. Our next step is the mystery of the cursing of the fig tree. So we're, again, we're going to collect all the fig trees. And that's eventually going to send us to Hosea 9, where the fig tree is used as a symbol for Israel. By the way, as the vine is used as a symbol of Israel, as the olive tree is used as a symbol of Israel. Now, the uh, symbol for the Antichrist is always the bramble bush or the whatever you want to think of it, the thorn bush or uh, what, are, what are they called in the, uh, in the deserts, the tumbleweeds. Okay? If you want to think of it that way. The, there's a wonderful prophecy. Uh, i got to think where it is now. Joel. Pretty sure it's Joel. Where the olive tree, uh, Jotham's prophecy of the trees, and the vine, where the vine and the olive tree and the fig tree say to the tumbleweed, essentially the bramble bush, you become the king of us. And he says, all I'm good for is lighting things on fire. I'm kindling. And it's a fascinating uh, prophecy, and we'll have to deal with that as well. But for today, for today, as now I'm getting in trouble, let's move to Mark 11. Just on your own, start looking up fig trees so that you can uh, say, I know this, because he commands us to know the parable of the fig tree. We should know it. So Mark eleven twelve through 14. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. Who's he? Christ. Oh, there's an interesting problem. He was hungry and seen from afar... Really? 
a fig tree having leaves. He went to see if perhaps. That's what it says. Who are we talking about here? God. So let's go again. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, God was hungry. And God, seen from afar, a fig tree having leaves, God went to see if perhaps God would find something on it. Okay? So now you know something really cool is happening here, isn't it? Because that isn't language we would typically associate with God. So something really cool is here. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So he said it in a way that they had to know. He made sure they heard it. And hopefully you've noticed that language is uh, not consistent with the omniscience of Christ. Hungry? Hungry for what? What does God hunger for? He sees the fig tree from afar. So he sees it. He's far away from the fig tree. How far is he? Why is he afar from the fig tree? When is he afar from the fig tree? What is the fig tree representing? Because God is afar from it. And he goes to the fig tree. He comes to the fig tree. When does he do it? And he found nothing but leaves. It was not yet the season that it has figs. And he says, let no one eat fruit from you ever. And his disciples heard that. How did they react? It's like he beat it into them. How did they react? Did they know the meaning of this dramatic theodicy? Because that's what it is. It's called a dramatic theodicy. And obviously, we're going to have to gather more information. Let's go to Matthew 21. We're going to come right back to Mark here in a second. So, hold your place there. Matthew 21:18. I'm just going to go in this particular order. Now in the morning he returned to the city. He was hungry and seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and he found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow from you ever again. Again, what does God hunger for? How did they know he was hungry? His stomach growling? They go, oh, he must be hungry. Obviously he told them he was hungry. And he go, hungry for what? That's a bad question. What's the right question? Hungry for who? And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Immediately the fig tree withered away. So now I have a fig tree that has no leaves on it. And went not immediately, by the way. We'll get to that and what the meaning of immediately is in just a second. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither away so soon? How did the fig tree wither away so soon? It happened pretty fast. So Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast in the sea, it will be done. And, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Now back to Mark. This time verse 20 of chapter 11. More information on... The cursed fig tree. Now in the morning as they passed, 
So now it's in the morning. You have to put them all together to get the true picture here. So he sees a fig tree from afar. He goes to it. It has no figs. He curses it because he's hungry. See, if you think that he wants figs, what does he do? He can make what? Food out of nothing. If he's hungry, he should just make figs out of nothing if he wants figs. But he doesn't. He goes to a fig tree and he demonstrates a doctrinal truth. He doesn't, he, he can go 40 days and 40 nights. He probably just, he does that as, because he wants that 40 without eating anything. He's God. His body doesn't decay. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look! Obviously has no idea this is omniscient God at this point, does he? The fig tree which you cursed has withered away. What a shock. And I have, you know, you can just imagine God. And by the way, don't, don't belittle Peter because we are the same as him. We go around, look, God, air. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith. In God, for assuredly I say to you, whoever says this, says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, but does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Does that mean you get a Mercedes? No, it does not. Throw away your, your Janice Joplin records. You're not going to get a Mercedes Benz. Don't be Ridiculous. That health, wealth, prosperity stuff that you see on TV where they got the big hair. and One guy says, people come up, you told me I was going to get a check for $25,000 and now I got a check for $25,000. I don't doubt that somebody gave her a check for $25,000. If you would like a check for $25,000, I will give you one right today. I'll just go give you one. And what do you have when I'm done? You have a piece of paper that is worthless. I don't doubt. They never say they got any money. They just say they got a check. It's a complete, total scam. It's a bunch of... I can't say those words. I can spell them. But I won't. You're not going to get health, wealth, and prosperity because you prayed harder. You're just a sucker. You're in that church. You're wondering where the sucker is. Get a mirror. It's you. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe them, believe that you receive them and you will have them. What should you pray for? So, this is more information. We have a, we have the morning, we have a mountain, we have withering, we have a curse. And some key questions need to be resolved here. He says about no doubt, does not have doubt, no doubt in his heart. So what is the definition of doubt-free faith? Which mountain are you going to move? How many mountains are you going to take out? Why are you going to get rid of the mountains? When are you going to get rid of the mountains? Why did the fig tree wither? Is the fig tree dead now? As God defines dead. 
What does God mean dead is? When he says that person is dead, what does he mean? When he says that person has life, what does he mean? Life is synonymous with who? Christ. If you have Christ, you have life. If the fig tree has life, then the fig tree has Christ. Does the fig tree today, 2015, have Christ? When you see the fig tree have Christ, that's when the Messiah, King, God himself is coming to rule. So we should be watching for all the trees and the fig tree to show signs of leaves. Will we get to see the figs? No, because we're 9, 10, and 11 of the 12 steps. So, next week, we will decide what no doubt Doubt-free faith is and have faith in God truly mean. Musicians.